I don't think there's that many more kind of hurdles anymore. I think, you know, once you have enough kind of legendary investors come out, once you have a corporation added to the balance sheet, once you have an insurance company added, uh, most of the, the floodgates are, are open. Hello there from Bedford. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And I've got my end of year macro review with the amazing Lynn Alden. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. So let's kick off with BlockFi. And a massive thanks to BlockFi for continuing to support the show. It's been over two years now they've been sponsoring it. We've stuck this out together. And I'm really, really proud and amazed of what they've done as a company. Now, they did have a big announcement recently. They are launching a Bitcoin Visa Rewards credit card where you can earn a market leading 1.5% rewards on all card purchases. The waitlist registration is now open to all registered BlockFi clients. And if you want to join the priority waiting list, then you just need to open up a BlockFi account. If you don't want to, then the public waitlist is slated to open in early January. And if you're interested in checking BlockFi out, I do recommend you do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, a massive thanks to Kraken for continuing to sponsor and support the show. Now, they are my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin. And they are the only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. And you want to know why, right? Well, Kraken is consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. And security is really, really important to me. They also have a best in class in customer service. So if you've got any issue, whatever it is, wherever you are, if you reach out to them, they're going to help you get that shit sorted. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have all the tools you could possibly need. So whatever your level of experience, at Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile first app so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. And with their margin trading, futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, on to the show today, and I'm joined by the amazing Lynn Alden to review 2020 through a macro lens. Lynn has been on the show before. You will have heard her. She really, really killed it. There was so much great feedback about that. So when I was preparing to do a monthly macro review in 2021, I asked Lynn if she wanted to come on board with that, and she agreed, which is great news for everyone who likes her work, that she's going to be on the show every month in 2021. Now, in this episode, we get into what a crazy year 2020 has been from the pandemic's effect on the economy the crazy levels of money printing and fears of high inflation and how a scarce asset like bitcoin stands to gain from this it's been really interesting to talk to lynn about all of this it's always interesting talking to lynn and this one was no different it was a great roundup to the year if you've got any questions about this show got any feedback you want to reach out to me it's hello at whatbitcoindid.com as i said i always reply to everyone as long as you don't send me some weird nonsense i will get back to you I might take a few days depending on when it is. Outside of that, have a great week and I will see you all soon. Lynn, hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm really, really good, thank you. I think we're all good. What a week, right? Yeah, it's been a crazy week. I mean, I, I only care about Bitcoin. I know you have a diverse portfolio, but that's my, my only investment. So um, when I have a good week, I have a really good week. And when I have a bad week, I have a really bad week. Uh, but I know you're a Bitcoiner now, so you must have been uh, enjoying this run-up. Did you expect it? Yeah, uh, it's a little earlier than I would have guessed, I suppose. Uh, so, you know, one thing I've been covering since uh, November 
as I was, you know, cautioning people about a potential correction because we came pretty far pretty fast. We we're testing previous highs. And I, you know, I reiterated that I'm not trading around, that I'm not selling any Bitcoins and just kind of setting expectations. Uh, and so we got that correction. We got that consolidation. And then my, my main focus there was, you know, once it breaks over 20,000, you know, that's uh, quite a, you know, quite a run up potential. Uh, and so yeah. until it breaks 20,000, it was, it was kind of vulnerable to corrections. Uh, but then it just kind of out of nowhere, just broke above 20,000 and kept going. Kept going. Was it tw- about tw- just short of 23,800, which I thought was pretty impressive. Uh, I think it'll be interesting if it to see if it stays above 20, above 20,000, if there's any pullback. Yeah. I don't know. I don't tend to look at what happens this time of the year. Do people still, are they still trading as much? What do you expect? Uh, with Bitcoin, I don't know. I know that, you know, general markets, uh, people trade less. Uh, but, you know, historically for, you know, especially the U.S. stock market, uh, they call it the Santa rally. So so stocks tend to do very well into the year end. Uh, and so, you know, we'll see if that, that ends up applying to Bitcoin or not. Well, there's lots of interesting people coming in. Anyway, we're going to do a review of the year. So thank you for doing this. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, our last show did exceptionally well. It's been viewed over 80,000 times now, which is amazing. Um and uh, we're going to be working together a little bit more over the year, which is also exciting. But we've got a lot to cover. I think, realistically, the best starting point we're going to have to start with is the economic shock. The biggest You called it the biggest in modern history. What happened this year? Um, just out of interest, when you call it the biggest in modern history, what, what kind of time frame is that? Is that you know, like our lifetime? Even our parents? Uh, I mean, back to you know World War II, roughly. At least in, in a lot of countries. Right, so... Definitely. I mean, it's the the biggest I've known, uh, and and the strangest. Yeah, at least as yeah, if you measure it as, for example, GDP decline, unemployment increase going up uh, in the United States, uh, and you know, for most countries, I mean, their GDP was just absolutely crushed uh, during quarter two, uh, and so we we've already had a sharp rebound. We still haven't gotten back to previous levels uh, in most countries, uh, and so you know, basically, it's 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 a bigger economic shock than the the crisis from over a decade ago. And you pretty much have to go back to you know the, the, the major wars or, or the Great Depression to find similar economic shocks. Have you noticed any difference between countries which may have handled the lockdowns in a better way? Like outside of people's opinions of whether lockdowns should happen or not. I'm, I'm not interested in that right now. Let's say, for example, the UK, we kind of have these tier-based systems. We've just been, where I live, been put into tier three, which is like the highest level. Um, the whole thing's been an absolute massive failure. And you look at a country like Australia, and again, I'm, I'm not judging how the, the strictness of their lockdowns. I'm just more interested in, have you noticed any pattern related to different countries, the economic shock? Not in some of the really broad economic indicators. And so, for example, you know, we can look at Japan, for example. In Japan, uh, you know, they never did full lockdowns. They had very low virus counts, and but they still had a, a really big economic slump. Uh, and same thing generally applies to a lot of other countries. There's not a ton of correlation. It, it partially depends on how export-driven the economy is, uh, how commodity-dependent the, the economy is. Uh, but it, I think it, you know, that certainly makes a difference when you get down to the individual small business level, right? Because those are the ones that are the most impacted by the shutdowns. Uh, and so, I, you know, that that data is much harder to measure. Uh, but for example, in the United States, we saw you know a big drop off in small business activity. Then we started to see a rebound this summer, but then it rolled back over, and it's just been kind of stagnant. Uh, and so that that's actually my biggest concern, probably, of this this whole crisis, uh, is that basically that you know the the crushing of of small restaurants, small businesses, compared to you know a lot of the bigger companies being able to stay in business more comfortably, partially because they can access capital markets. 
uh, you know, partially just because they're, you know, they have more financial reserves to work through, uh, and also because, you know, they they got bailouts. And even though we did, you know, in the United States, for example, we did PPP loans that turn into grants, so that that kind of went to keeping some of these small businesses afloat. But that only lasted a few months, uh, and so if the shutdowns last a lot longer than the stimulus, uh, a lot of them end up going out of business. Yeah, I guess if you're someone like McDonald's, you can very quickly implement a. No, no access. We had it here. There's no access to the restaurant, but you could use the drive-through. Uh, we know things like Domino's can very quickly set themselves up to be delivery only, and they have the ability to advertise this, reach out to people. I guess these, if you're a smaller, you know, like a pub or an independent sandwich shop, in that kind of situation, firstly putting in the infrastructure, but also letting people know that you can do that is is a lot more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so let's break down what happened in terms of you know your kind of observations on how, and we'll use the U.S. as a, you know, that's the majority of the listeners to this. But in terms of what we've seen in uh, stimulus from the government, what what what's actually been in place? What has the effect been? What's the impact? So the stimulus in the United States uh, took a couple of different forms. One was uh, $1,200 stimulus checks. Uh, they got a lot of the attention, but some of the bigger components of it were. Basically, that the federal government provided extra unemployment benefits for people that lost their jobs. And so normally the way it works in the United States is that states provide unemployment benefits uh, and they're pretty small benefits. Uh, but this year, the federal government said we'll add another $600 a week to those unemployment benefits. Uh, and so that that lasted three or four months. And so for people that got the, the full amount of that, that was several thousands of dollars. Uh, and uh, in many cases, that exceeded the wages they were making that they would have made if they were still employed during that time. So we actually saw uh, briefly national income went up uh, in, in April and, and May. You know, then also they did PPP loans. These are basically some, you know, several hundred billion dollars of loans that went out to small businesses that are largely forgiven. So they, they mostly turn into grants as long as you met certain really basic requirements. Uh, but of course, we found out over time a lot of that, you know, a lot of that was used for fraud. Uh, it disproportionately went to uh, kind of medium-sized businesses, not even really super small businesses. You know, it was kind of scaled up, and a lot of that uh, went to some of the bigger small businesses, uh, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, you know, since then, we, we've been, you know, a stimulus mostly tapered off, and now they've been re uh, negotiating another package that might be 900 billion might be might be another number and so far they've been unable to kind of come to a consensus it looks like they're getting closer uh probably you know maybe when this airs it'll be you know we'll have news out it'll be different but uh basically there's a, there's been such like a an economic hole and all the stimulus going back to try to fill it up and so we're seeing a really rapid increase in the broad money supply uh, and the national debt and what has the impact of that been because like the things that i look out for are very basic but yeah, and some things you highlighted to me, for example, that despite you know, companies closing down for business for temporary you know, periods and the massive impact on GDP, we have seen this massive rise in the stock market despite a huge increase in jobs. It, it doesn't make sense why this is happening, but what's your analysis? Uh, so part of it, I think, makes sense and part of it doesn't. And so if you look, if you separate growth stocks from value stocks, 
right? So most value stocks, like, you know, banks and other things like that, they had a much worse time throughout the year. And only in recent months did they really kind of start to recover pretty strongly. Many of them are still below their, you know, their uh, early 2020 or late 2019 highs. Uh, whereas tech stocks, growth stocks, most of them just soared all the way to new all-time highs. Uh, and, you know, in some countries like the United States, those tech growth stocks make up a big chunk of the index. And so they can pull the whole index up uh, really sharply. Uh, and so, uh, we've seen that kind of bifurcation between companies that are not harmed by it and that were harmed by it. Uh, but then because interest rates came down so far, you know, that, that cash, you know, in, in, in many places is negative for uh, nominal yields. And then the United States, even if you're getting a zero or a slightly positive yield, it's still not keeping up with inflation. And so you have a negative real yield. And so basically investors are, are seem to be using stocks as a store of value. They're saying even though some of them are highly valued, even though they're risky, uh, one of the alternatives is is cash that literally takes your purchasing power away. And so you know, and that's like, for example, Michael Saylor pointed out he, he was sitting on, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in cash while the broad money supply is going up, you know, 25 percent year over year and, and likely to go up in, in, you know, not not to that extent, but double digit percentages uh, probably for several more years. Uh, and so when, when people see that happening, they'd rather be in, in equities. Right. One thing I wanted to understand is that, you know, traditionally, uh, people invest in stocks. You sh- usually, you should be investing in stocks based on you know, projections of how that company will do and forward belief. But we've also seen a, a massive increase in retail investors with apps such as Robinhood. I'm guessing that if there's a number of, uh, of new buyers coming in, uh, I'm going to hazard a guess that these people aren't as experienced in knowing what to trade, how to trade, reading cash flow forecasts. Um, reading projections, looking at like the com- competition with the market, and, and maybe are just buying a little bit more based on I don't know gut feel, and therefore does that just traditional supply demand mean that there's uh, too much demand for those stocks and that's inflating the prices? Yeah, pretty much. And we haven't really seen this type of retail enthusiasm since the late '90s during the dot-com bubble, yeah. because we never we never got this during you know in the in the aftermath of the you know the 2009 crisis, for example, uh, when, when the stock market started to recover, we never saw that that enthusiasm come back. Uh, and whereas we have to go back pretty much to the late '90s to find you know a lot of indicators look similar. So back then, uh, the, the the amount of IPOs was very high. Uh, and the majority of them were unprofitable. Something like 80% of them were unprofitable. Uh, and of course, there was a frenzy of retail buying. That was, of course, like not long after the the creation of the you know the consumer internet. And so uh, the the you know availability of online brokerages really took off. Uh, and so uh, the, you know we had that big kind of lull where there wasn't a lot of you know retail activity. We saw more passive investing. Uh, but then this year, I mean, I guess people you know they couldn't really go out in many cases. They got stimulus checks. Uh, and so people just poured into, uh, you know, all sorts of trading programs. Uh, and so we, they basically, you know, uh, flooded into stocks. But then even institutional buyers, uh, you know, they just they're, they're looking at the available options. They're looking at interest rates uh, and they're still saying, I'd rather be in equities. Uh, and it, I think it depends on the sector you look at. So I think some of the tech stocks got really overvalued, you know, but there are other stocks like healthcare stocks or other or other sort of equities uh, that are still average valuation compared to their history. And so they still look more attractive, for example, than cash, because you can buy a healthcare stock and might have a price to earnings ratio of 15, which is normal. It might be paying a two or 3% dividend yield uh, and it's growing earnings uh, compared to holding cash in a bank that, you know, is paying you like 0.2% and then 
and inflation's like you know one and a half percent, and you're just getting your purchasing power chipped away, uh, while broad money goes up at you know ten, twenty percent a year. Yeah, I I don't know who's getting point two percent, but I'm not getting that in my bank. That's for sure. Uh, do you worry about something like Tesla because the company's now valued more than isn't it like all other car companies put together? Um, and do you do you worry that we could be heading to a similar kind of dot com crash that happened in the nineties? Could something be tr- trigger that? I I think some of those sectors uh, have gotten into bubble territory. Uh, and so, like, if you look at some of the mega caps, like say, you know, Google and, and Amazon, uh, they're expensive, but they're not like, you know, comically expensive relative to their, you know, kind of, uh, you know, their their cash flows, their earnings. There are some stocks like Apple that I think got quite ahead of themselves. Uh, but really, you know, to find the most kind of bubblicious ones, it's a lot of the unprofitable tech companies. Uh, you know, the price to sales ratios look a lot like the late 90s. Uh, and, you know, in particular, we've seen a really big boom in renewable energy this year. And it's funny because the fundamentals aren't that different than 12 months ago, uh, but their stock prices are in many cases up, you know, double, triple, quadruple, or in Tesla's case, more than that. And so, uh, and now that Tesla is being added to the S&P 500 index, uh, roughly right now, like it basically, uh, you know, investors are already kind of uh, putting that in now. Uh, and so that kind of created a lot of forced buying because all these major, in, uh, you know, index funds have to buy Tesla now. And it's the biggest component ever added to the S&P 500. And the reason that happened is because in order to be added to the S&P 500, you have to be a profitable company. And Tesla spent most of its lifetime not profitable, but it got so big anyway in terms of valuation. Uh, and so I, I think Tesla and some of the other you know, renewable energy stocks, some of the unprofitable tech stocks, some of them are vulnerable uh, you know, in the years ahead to, a, I think, a pretty sizable correction. All right, I'm just looking. The Tesla market cap is right now... 620 billion dollars and analysts expect revenue of 8.3 billion 8.4 billion we reported net income of 331 million pretty wild yeah it's outrageous yeah it's, it's an extraordinarily high price to, to sales ratio and it's you know it's tricky because a lot of people point out that they're not purely a car company and that's true, but they're still, yeah, I mean, they're a big chunk of what they do is hardware, whether it's cars, whether it's, you know, solar things, whether it's, you know, uh, all batteries, things like that. And hardware just tr- traditionally does not have super high profit margins. Uh, you know, we, the, one of the exceptions is Apple, you know, the, the blend of hardware and software. Uh, they've been able to have really high profit margins. Uh, but in general, it's just a very competitive business. And we see, you know, a lot of other top top automakers like Porsche and, and other, you know, other other big names kind of come into electrical uh, vehicle space. Uh, and so, I, you know, I consider Tesla to be a pretty high, uh, you know, uh, valued uh, risk risk stock. Now, it's one of those things. I mean, this has been a funny year because anyone who had any sort of prudence, anyone who's saying, you know, this is, looks expensive, generally throughout the year, whatever you were looking at just got more expensive. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so... You know, it's it's been it's been tricky, definitely, for people that are trying to to risk manage anything. Uh, but you know, it's one of those things that can go further than you think. Uh, but whenever it does reverse, it can get it can get pretty scary. Would you dare short it? Uh, so I I did a couple. Uh, I I wouldn't do like a one of those like long term shorts on it because you know you always have the risk of it going up. I've done a couple uh, attempted shorts on Tesla for fun this summer. Uh, which is basically that, you know, if, if it starts to have a correction from very overbought levels, 
I'll put a small short position on, but then with a very tight stop so that if it goes up, you know, and breaks a certain level, like it breaks new all-time highs, I cover my short and get out. So I basically lost no money on it. Uh, but, you know, one of those times it could pay off pretty substantially. And so I use it as a minor hedge sometimes if I want to, you know, because I, you know, I have Bitcoin, I have equities, I have all these other investments. And so uh, occasionally when we have overbought conditions, I look for a small hedge. But you have to be very careful with when you, when you do that. Those those investors that have just been kind of holding a short Tesla position, I've just gotten crushed. All right. Well, listen, let's get back to the um, what's been happening with the uh, the economy this year. So you said to me in like your notes, because we spoke beforehand, you said to me that this isn't like a normal recession. What What is the like, what is the key difference? And how do you think we will come out of this? Uh, so with most recessions, uh, basically, you get a big decline in economic activity, you get a big deleveraging event, uh, and you get a big stock market decline. So people lose a lot of uh, net worth on paper. This one, because we're towards the end of a long-term debt cycle, which is a subject we talked a lot about in our previous podcast, uh, that basically things work different uh, in this sort of environment in the sense that uh, usually it's it's a rapid increase in the broad money supply because uh, you know the basically the amount of debt uh, is so big in the system that if it were to deleverage the system would kind of unravel and become insolvent and so what you, is what you see instead is that you know you see partial deleveraging here and there uh, but then you also see a rapid increase in the broad money supply and some degree of currency devaluation and so the fact that you know we had the biggest economic shock in history while while average incomes went up is an example of that and so and the stock market hit fresh new all-time highs uh while we had the biggest economic shock since world war ii uh if you also look at things like you know the amount of uh you know sovereign debt issued both the united states uh, and around the world is just absolutely immense it looks like a, it looks basically like a war you have to go back to world war ii again to find times where you know fiscal deficits as a percentage of gdp were this high and so it's a very different environment than the normal five to ten year recession Actually, that was a th- something I wanted to ask you, but that I didn't really understand is that I understand how the UK and the US can essentially switch the money printer on. How do they do that in the EU when they have a single currency? How do individual states? Uh, yeah, that's actually, I mean, that's a, that's what part of the reason they, they've done in some cases smaller stimulus because they they have to do something as a consensus. Right. Uh, and so kind of like in the United States where we have we have so much polarization between, you know, uh, red states and blue states and, you know, a lot of uh, political uh, uh, gridlock that, you know, makes things hard to get done. Europe in some in many ways is 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 more extreme in that sense because you have to get uh, buy in from multiple countries. Uh, and so neither of those individual, com- you know, countries can just unilaterally do a massive, you know, fiscal stimulus because they, you know, they don't ha- they gave up control of their own currency. Whereas, you know, for example, Japan, the United States, uh, Britain, they they all have just more unilateral decision to basically devalue their currency and and prop up whatever they're trying to prop up. So does that mean the the euro is a good currency to hold right now? Is it holding up better against the dollar and the pound and the yen? Ironically, yes. I mean that you know the Europe has. Uh, I haven't checked it versus the pound, but the euro has been been very strong versus the dollar this year, uh, and that was actually one of my you know I, I've been outlining that probability ever since uh, late 2019 uh, that I've been in in basically the camp that I think that the dollar was going to decrease uh, versus a basket of major currencies, uh, and that basket is do, like uh, dominated by the euro in terms of market cap. And so that has happened so far this year uh, pretty sharply. And it's partly because Europe just has not done the same level of, of fiscal stimulus uh, as the United States. Uh, and so, you know, their currency held up stronger 
uh, but some of their economic indicators have been weaker. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm just looking now. Back in March, essentially when it started, it was uh, trying to follow this. Yeah, it has dropped. I'm not sure if I'm reading this chart correctly. It shows why I'm well out of my depth. <laughs> but it does look like it's dropped. Um, that's interesting. Quite a big drop as well. Yeah, like late late last year is worth, you know, like a one euro is worth a dollar eleven. Uh, yeah. uh, and then it, you know, we had that big, uh, volatility event around March. Uh, mm. but then now, uh, you know, the Euro is worth, uh, $1.23. Uh, and yeah, so amazing. it's had that, yeah, something like a 10% appreciation. Uh, and, uh, so that's, you know, that could that's been my well, base right? case, just, uh, potentially it's getting up near some, some resistance levels. And so if you look back, uh, we had similar weakness in the dollar back in, uh, 2017, uh, into the very beginning of 2018. And we're kind of retesting those highs, and so it'll be interesting to see if it can if it can break that level or if it if it kind of gets range bound here. My my base case is probably over the next several years to see the dollar weaken versus the basket of major currencies, uh, but we have to watch some of those key levels. Well, they're all going to weaken against Bitcoin, that's for sure. Right. Okay. So, listen, you were talking about the increase in the broad money supply by about twenty percent. Just so people understand, just explain what the broad money supply is. Yeah, so there's a couple different ways to define money. It's funny because you know we think of money should be simple to, to define, uh, but it's actually there's multiple ways to define it. And so, uh, you know, banks, for example, have base money. So base money consists of things like the, the reserves that banks have, uh, you know, on deposit with the central bank. Uh, and base money also includes things like currency and circulation, physical currency. Uh, but then there's a much larger amount of money that consists of checking accounts, savings accounts, certificates of deposits, uh, things like that. All, all, you know, if you were to like look at all your 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 fiat bank accounts, that's that's you know part of the broad money equation. And in the United States, that figures something around 19 trillion. Uh, so there's about 19 trillion if you add up checking accounts, savings accounts, currency and circulation, all those different metrics. Uh, and so that figure has gone up about 25% year over year. And you know, if you look back over the past decade, it was it was rising at maybe five or six percent a year on average. Uh, and so this has been the biggest jump uh, since the 1940s. And you know, that's that that's a lot different than, for example, what happened in 2008, 2009. So when people often look at what central banks are doing, like they're increasing their balance sheet, uh, you know, a lot of that uh, QE that they do when they when they increase bank reserves, a lot of that does not get out into the broad money supply. Uh, that only gets out into the broad money supply if either banks lend it or if the the government runs massive fiscal deficits and basically ejects it out to people. They you know, they give people checks, they bail things out, uh, and so we we saw that on a much smaller scale back in 2008, 2009. Uh, but in in this year, both in the U.S. and to a lesser extent in other countries, uh, that that combination of massive quantitative easing combined with massive fiscal deficits basically injected that money straight into the broad money supply. Right. So when you talk about a uh, potential new stimulus bill, not say not, let's just say for the sake of uh, ease, say it's another trillion dollars. Does that increase the broad money supply by a trillion dollars? Uh, generally, yes. And so, uh, but it depends on a couple of specifics. And so if we were to go back, say, before we got into all this craziness with, with central bank balance sheets going vertical, generally, if the government were to do a fiscal stimulus, uh, you know, so it, it pays the money out, but then legally it has to issue bonds uh, to basically recoup those expenses. It can't just print money and send it out to people. And so they would basically extract money from somewhere else 
So, so they, they issue bonds and then investors buy those bonds. So that extracts capital from them and then it, it injects that capital uh, to other people. And so uh, in that sense, you would not see a broad money supply. That's kind of zero. You're just yeah. Re- yeah, you're just rearranging where the money is. However, if they do a massive fiscal stimulus and then when they issue the bonds, the, the central bank just prints money and buys those bonds. Uh, then that money is not really extracted from anywhere else in the economy. And of course, there's all sorts of legal things like that. You know, the central bank generally doesn't buy directly from the treasury. It's like banks will buy it and then, you know, they'll sell it to the, to the Fed, you know, like at another time. And But, you know, one way or another, they end up on the Fed's balance sheet uh, with newly printed money. And so when you have that combination of massive fiscal, massive fiscal stimulus with massive quantitative easing, that directly increases the broad money supply. So 25%, you're talking about four to five trillion increase this year. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Holy shit. Okay. So so the implications of that are, how does that temp- tend to trickle out into the economy? What tends to be the implications? Because you know, I've read a lot about a lot of the money just ending up making rich people richer. There's a lot of people complaining about that's essentially what's happened here. Um, it's gone to essentially the billionaires and the people running the companies. But w- where does this tend to kind of trickle out to? So if you look back historically, uh, so again, looking at the United States, uh, we over the past century, we've had two very inflationary decades. Those were the 1940s and the 1970s. Uh, and both of those uh, were also the two decades that saw a very big increase in the broad money supply. Uh, and so uh, th- basically, we're on track where b- broad money supply increases over the past several years, You know, especially because of this year, are starting to look like those decades. Now, we've not seen the official consumer price inflation uh, tick up to that level yet. It's And there's a variety of reasons for that. One is because a lot of people couldn't spend during this year, right? They could spend on things like, you know, home goods or, you know, they had to re- kind of target their spending. Uh, they couldn't travel as much. They, you know, they couldn't eat at restaurants as much. So that, that money didn't circulate very well. So we got a decrease in, in, in money velocity. Uh, and so it, it partially depends on how that stimulus is done. So if, if hypothetically, if they just had all the money go out in, in the form of stimulus checks or things like that, that would get out to the regular person, uh, you know, pretty significantly. And in part, that's what happened. But because also part of the money was used for corporate bailouts, part of the money went to, you know, the high end of small businesses in, in the form of PPP loans. Like I know there are literally financial asset managers or research firms that got PPP loans that turn into grants. So they were doing fine. Then they got money. It turns into grants, and you know part of the reason, like PPP loans, were supposed to support the employees. Like if mm-hmm. you were, if you otherwise would have to fire employees, this says, okay, you get this money, but then you have to use that mostly to pay employees. But if you were not really planning on firing employees anyway, and then you still got the check, that all just goes up to the up to senior management. That just goes up to whoever owns the company, unless they decide to give it out as bonuses or something. And so, because part of the stimulus went to those kind of upper echelon groups. And part of the stimulus went down to the everyday people. Uh, it, it's kind of a mixed bag. So, is there potential then, as we come out of lockdowns and people have their vaccinations and we, life gets kind of back to normal, that there may be an inflationary shock as people have sat on money? Uh, I know myself. Look, I'm, I can't spend any money at the moment. I can't travel. Can't have holidays. Yeah, you know, I I've saved money during this period, um, but I do know once it ends, we're going to have a holiday. You know, might buy a car. All those kind of things may move house. Can you have an inflationary shock as there's a sudden, uh, like rapid increase in the in the, uh, the circulation of money? Is that a possibility? Yeah, I think so. And, and part of the reason we didn't see any sort of you know official 
uh, inflation this year in a broad sense was because you had that big increase in the money supply that was offsetting that big deflationary shock. And so if you alleviate that deflationary shock, I mean, that money's still out there forever. And so uh, if that money starts to move a little quicker, uh, it's pretty easy to get an inflationary shock. And there are a couple of things, you know, for example, because we had a, a, a big decrease in energy prices this year, so energy prices are one of the big components for inflation. Right. Uh, and so because we had that, that that kind of took away a lot of the inflationary potential. But then, of course, because commodity prices and energy prices became so low, we saw a lot of uh, oil and gas companies start to cut their capital expenditures. Uh, so their production over the next several years is now lower than it what than it would have been. Uh, and so if you get that rebound in travel, uh, if you get that, you know, basically that rebound in energy demand, uh, up against uh, tighter supply, then you can get higher energy prices, and that would likely trickle out into broader inflation. And so I think that's the, one of the key things to watch for is what happens with energy markets. Uh, so I, I think there's a decent chance that by you know late 2021, maybe 2022, uh, you definitely could see uh, you know some of that pent up demand as it relates to travel. Uh, so far this year, we you know there has been targeted inflation. And so, for example, grocery prices in, in many countries uh, became very elevated uh, because, you know, we had to kind of rearrange our supply chains. We had some shortages. Uh, and, you know, if you look back in general, even though this has been you know, a quote unquote uninflationary decade, there, you know, official inflation measures have not been very high. It really depends on what segments you look at. So, for example, uh, in, that, in the United States, for example, things like tuition or child care or health care services They've been quite inflationary. They've been going up at a much faster rate than the, than the, than the official like broad CPI. Uh, but that's been somewhat offset by things such as you know electronics keep getting cheaper. Uh, you know offshoring keeps keeps manufactured goods very cheap. And so there's been this big kind of bifurcation between manufactured good. Uh, price increases versus service price increases. And so uh, if you were to get that commodity shortage, you could have a broader inflationary surge. Next up, I talked to Lynn more about macroeconomics and Bitcoin during 2020. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. All right, sportsbet.io, a big thank you to you as well for supporting the show all year. It's been great to work with you. I love this company. I love how much they care about Bitcoin. I love the fact that they put a Bitcoin logo on the front of a Premier League football shirt. If you get to watch Southampton this year, you'll see all around this. Actually, with Arsenal as well, you'll get to see all around the stadium sportsbet.io Bitcoin adverts, which is pretty cool. Now, sportsbet.io are the best place online gaming because they do accept Bitcoin, which is pretty cool. And if you like gaming, they have markets for everything you could possibly be interested in. All US sports, all football, Premier League, Spanish football, Italian football, they've got everything covered. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. Just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Okay, lastly, we're going to talk about my friends over at Casa who absolutely crush it with Bitcoin security. Now, with the market booming, with Bitcoin hovering around the $26,000, $27,000 mark, which, which in itself is slightly mental. But with it around there, some of you have probably seen your Bitcoin stack grow to quite a decent level. And you're probably thinking about your security. Now, with Casa, you're going to have a multi-sig setup, which is going to protect you from hacks, 
personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failure, and so much more. I signed up seven months ago. I became a paying customer. I didn't even take it for free like Nick offered it. I paid. I'm glad I paid for it. I've got so much peace of mind. Now, if you want to become a Casa customer, if you want to check it out, they do have a product for every Bitcoiner. They've got Casa Gold, which will give you triple the security of a hardware wallet. That one is only $10 a month. If you want to go a bit more premium, they've got Class of Platinum, where you get their three or five multi-sig, which is the best protection for large Bitcoin holders. That also comes at a great price. And with Cars of Diamond, you get their full service offering. That includes a customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best in class in security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. What happened with inflation during the 40s and the 70s? How bad did it get? And and add to that, how bad do you think it could get? What kind of rates do you think we could see? Uh, so that, it depends on uh, the country you look at. Uh, in the United States, which is where I have my, my most detailed uh, numbers, uh, the 1940s and the 70s, uh, they had similar levels of overall inflation, but it took different forms. So the, so the 1940s, they had three really big spikes of inflation. And so like the highest spike, I mean, two of the spikes got into double digits uh, and one of the other spikes got into the high single digits. Wow. Uh, and so uh, they, they were just these rapid spikes. And so by, by the end of the decade, uh, you know, if you were holding treasuries, you lost something like a third of your purchasing power. Uh, if you look at the 70s, it was different because uh, the, the actual, the high point, again, it got into the, the low double digits, but that the high point was not quite as high as some of the spikes reached in the 1940s, but it was more persistent. Uh, because it was kind of uncontrolled. Back then, you know, it, it got in, you know, but by, again, by the end of the, the decade, you lost about a third of your purchasing power if you were holding cash or treasuries. Uh, and actually, more than that, uh, is one difference was that the 70s, they were able to raise rates to try to combat inflation, whereas the 1940s, they did not raise rates because sovereign debt was too high. Nice. Uh, and so I I don't have a, you know, it partially is going to depend on what happens with, with energy markets and commodity markets. Uh, but, you know, I do think that there's a, a chance to, you know, to get much higher inflation than the Federal Reserve's 2% inflation target. So this is why all the billionaires are moving their money into Bitcoin, because essentially they could, it seems like they're front running the potential for inflation towards the end of next year. I think, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, I think smart money is cautious. I mean, for example, if you look at Stanley Druckenmiller's comments, I mean, he's mm. one of the best traders in history. Uh, his, his returns were just absolutely silly. And so he, when he, when he got into Bitcoin, you know, he, he cited inflation as one of the reasons, you know, he expects, he expects gold to do well. He says, if gold does well, he thinks Bitcoin will do even better. Uh, he, he thinks some commodity companies uh, could do pretty well. And so, you know, he's, he's looking several years out. And so he, he, you know, he cited, for example, like a five year outlook for his, you know, inflation concerns. Uh, and so, you know, it's one of those things that might happen late 2021, might happen 2022. But I think that the deeper you get into the 2020s decade here uh, with such rapid money supply increases, uh, if you get any sort of commodity scarcity, uh, that, that triggers, you know, a good potential for inflation. Yeah, I've got the Paul Tudor Jones uh, letter that went out to his investors. I probably shouldn't have this, but I've got it anyway. And he refers to the great, the great monetary inflation. Is, is this the term people are using? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I have not heard that specific term, but it's appropriate term just because it hasn't been seen for decades. I mean, he said, it says in here, enlisting all the instruments that might respond to the great monetary inflation, 
The main investor letter po postulated that one day Bitcoin might become the fastest horse in the race. He's actually very interesting. To, you know, he's got he's got all the different measures like uh, Nasdaq, a um, bunch of things I've never heard of that you will you will know about. Um, GSCI, uh, the Australian, I think that's the commodities. Uh, it's like commodities, the yield curve. But um, he sees Bitcoin as the best asset and the fastest horse in the race with this. So it feels like what we're seeing with Bitcoin right now is that it's a race to get in because you know we saw what happened with the price. Uh, it's doubled since Saylor did here. So if anyone wants to do what Michael Saylor did, it's going to cost them double what it cost him. It's a real like first, real first come first serve with this. Um, what did you make of? Also, what did you make of uh, Mass Mutual? Oh, that's interesting. Just because you know. Like a, a tech company doing it is different than, uh, you know, a really established uh, insurance company. And so uh, the fact that now insurers are getting involved. Now, of course, for them is a much smaller percentage of their assets, you know, is a fraction of 1%. Uh, but basically that opens the floodgates where insurance companies could have a non-zero Bitcoin position. And so that that represents trillions of dollars of capital. Uh, and if 1% if, if of that gets into Bitcoin, I mean, that, that can move the price around the world. Uh, and so it's it's one of those things where that individual purchase was not very significant. Uh, but if that represents uh, the beginning of a consensus, that's pretty interesting. And it's funny because a lot of insurance companies uh, don't even don't even invest in stocks. And so if you look at mo a lot of insurance company balance sheets, uh, it's mostly you know bonds and and really super kind of low volatility investments. And then some of them also venture into to equity positions. Uh, so uh, you know. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway, you know, Buffett, Warren Buffett's company. I mean, that, that's primarily an insurance company and they, they invest in equities, obviously. Uh, and then, you know, there's other firms like Markel or one of the Ohio-based insurers. Some of them go into equities, uh, but a lot of them are, are bonds only. And so to see, you know, this one just going to Bitcoin is, is pretty interesting. Are you, uh, are you more bullish now on Bitcoin? I got I, about as bullish as I was this summer. So my, you know, I, I started my position in April and I was, you know, uh, uh, pretty bullish. But, you know, when I by the time I got to the summer, I, I was extremely bullish. And so I, I kind of have a, that same level of quite bullishness. You're not wishing you just put all your money in Bitcoin this year. You're not thinking, damn, that was the one uh, trade. Just, <laughs> it's just not how. Yeah, I don't I don't put I all in. I have don't. a pretty sizable position, though. I, uh, yeah. I read your uh, reports. Your, um, uh, how long do they take you, by the way? The, the, each one's like a book. Uh, they take several hours to do. Uh, but the, you know, research goes into it ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, some of my public articles, like my, my recent one on the global dollar reserve system. I mean, that one was one of my longest pieces ever. So that took days to put together. Hold on. Was that the one you sent me? Uh, no, that one, the other one, that uh, was the actually money printing, the one the I sent you, the yeah. money printing one. That was actually, that was also one of my longest. So that, that took a long time. And in part, because that was, it was partially aimed at, at educating retail investors, but it was also, uh, you know, kind of a, a response to some other professional investors, because there's been a lot of debates lately about what, what exactly constitutes money printing. And so that was kind of a response to some of them to kind of lay it out and, and say, like, here's the mechanics and, and to basically kind of, you know, kind of a counterpoint to some of the arguments I've been hearing. Well, what what does constitute money printing and what are the myths? What are, where are people getting it wrong? Uh, so there are basically people saying that because quantitative easing does not get out you know, into the broad money supply that it doesn't constitute money printing. And I agree with that part. Uh, but uh, I think what a lot of people were missing is if you do quantitative easing combined with massive fiscal deficits, that d injects it almost one for one directly into the broad money supply. Okay. And I think there are a lot of people kind of missing that extra variable.
Okay. Okay. Because if you go if you go back to 2008, you know a lot of people saw those balance sheets go vertical, and they were calling for hyperinflation. And of course, we never got that. We it was not a very inflationary decade, uh, and that's in large part because they missed the fact that there was no mechanism to get those bank reserves out into the broad public. Uh, so it was not lent by banks and deficits, you know, while they were sizable, they were not huge. And so we didn't see a rapid increase in the broad money supply after the global financial crisis, despite all of the central bank balance sheets going vertical. Uh, but so a lot of people are saying basically that it's going to happen the same thing this time. Quantitative easing is not inflationary. And I'm saying, OK, that that's fair. But look at what broad money supply is doing, uh, because this time is a, a different matter than 2008, 2009 because that's getting directly out into the broad money supply. So if somebody was listening to this, Lynn, somebody yeah, a bit like myself, and they're thinking, right, crap, I don't understand all this, um, but I'm I'm nervous. I've, what are the things that people should be looking out for? Because whilst we've had all these warnings, everyone's been warning us about the money printer. Everyone's been warning us about inflation. But, but like you say, things are quite steady at the moment. You know, here in the UK, we aren't seeing massive inflation. We, we just aren't. And yet our government is borrowing more money than they've ever borrowed. What are the things that people should be looking out for? And when, when would you think they will start to notice you know, an impact on their personal income or savings, I should say? I would focus on probably probably energy prices. You okay. know, watch what oil is doing. Uh, and if you're going to watch another indicator, watch what broad money supply is doing. And if you look at, I mean, several countries, if you look at most countries in the world, their, their broad money supply has not gone up as rapidly as United States. Uh, so if you look at, uh, you know, a lot of uh, places in Europe, if you look at China, if you look at Japan, you know, their money supply might have gone up, say, 10% year over year, which is pretty significant. So in some cases, a little bit more. Uh, but the United States has one of, been one of the exceptions where we've gone up 25% uh, year over year. Yeah, you talked also about the um, the signs of recovery, and you talked about a quick V rebound that rolls over into a flat grind. What, what do you think is going to be here? Is it, is it because there's certain companies that can rebound quickly and there will be access to capital, but there are other industries that perhaps have been almost decimated? Uh, yeah, pretty much. And so, you know, if you look at, at previous, you know, if you look at, at the 2008 recession, if you look at the 2001 recession in the United States, it took several years to get back to full full employment. Uh, so, you know, not not just in terms of the unemployment rate, but in terms of the number of people employed. Uh, and so, a lot of people earlier this year were calling for a V-shaped recovery. They were like, as soon as as soon as the lockdowns end, I mean, this is back in March and April. They were like, as soon as the lockdowns end, jobs can go right back up. We'll get back to normal. And I was pointing out that's not how it works. You can't just have millions of people leave the labor force and then quickly go back because what you have is you have a full credit cycle play out. So you start to have insolvencies. You have, you know, thousands of restaurants just go out of business and close their doors. Uh, you have some of the more cyclical businesses, uh, you know, companies that, you know, make products for restaurants, companies that make, you know, that are associated with travel. A lot of them just go bust. And so those people never get back to their job. And so what I called for instead was, a, you know, I called it a backward square root sign recovery, which is you get that, you get that snap back in jobs, yeah. right? So you get that, that mini V because you know lockdowns and restaurants go from being all closed to like partially open you know you get that kind of quick snapback but it's only part of the way and then it rolls over and goes mostly sideways and then it takes years to get rest of the jobs back and so far that's what we've been that's exactly what's been playing out where now jobs are growing very very slowly uh, in the United States and many other countries so could we be in be in a situation where we've got slow job growth high inflation and the government being out of bullets essentially with both fiscal and monetary stimulus sounds like a disaster scenario uh so potentially um now part of it is that 
part of the reason why some people aren't worried about inflation is because if there's high joblessness and if uh, you know wages don't really rise, right? Because there's, you know there's a lot of workers looking for jobs, so you know they're not really in a position to negotiate for higher wages. That can potentially keep a lid on inflation, right? Because you don't have right. more and more money chasing more and more uh, fewer and fewer goods. Now that can be short circuited if you get massive fiscal stimulus to just kind of pace people anyway, uh, and then if you get some sort of commodity shortage. Uh, and so uh, I think those are things to watch is what happens with stimulus and what happens with energy pricing. Uh, now, in terms of running out of bullets, I mean, monetary policy is mostly out of bullets now. I mean, you know, they're all like near zero, in some cases below zero. Uh, and so they're pretty much limited to asset purchases, you know, kind of monetizing whatever their fiscal spending is happening. Uh, and so fiscal stimulus uh, is is you know, they can pretty much do that until they get inflation, but then, you know, then the genie's out of the bottle, right? So I think that's that's kind of what we're seeing now is that because they're not seeing inflation, they're just like, well, let's do more. And so you can keep doing more, and it seems like there's no kind of cost for doing that. And at first there isn't because, you know, it's offsetting a deflationary shock. Uh, but then if you were to alleviate some of those deflationary conditions, either because people are traveling again or energy demands back or, you know, as commodity scarcity happens and you're still getting those those pretty sizable fiscal budget deficits, uh, I do think that that creates a more inflationary environment while the economy mm. is potentially still pretty weak. Yeah, it's interesting because you referred to classic fourth turning stuff. And it's only a book I've recently come to know and I'm, I'm kind of working my way through it. And it's it's kind of prophetic, really, that that is what we're going through here and it it feels kind of it feels kind of scary really because of the implications of what a fourth turning means um we discussed it i think at our last uh, interview i i think i mentioned i'd been out to santiago in chile and there was massive inequality there and it seems like these are issues that seem to be affecting other markets and, and can affect here in the uk and in the us you know an increase in you know people unemployed and increase in crime it's kind of scary no, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I mean, I can't imagine how, especially for people that, that couldn't work from home this year. I mean, imagine that the anger a lot of people felt when, you know, their restaurants was closed. Either they owned the restaurant or they worked at the restaurant uh, or, you know, they're, they're, they worked in travel. And so so a lot of people are just experiencing a lot of economic pain this year. Basically, it's, it's, it's at the situation where, you know, there's so much kind of bifurcation between, you know, uh, some places did very well throughout the pandemic, other places did very poorly. Uh, and so there's just a lot of frustration build up. And, you know, it also goes country by country. So, for example, in the United States, uh, if you look at the median net worth of the person, it's actually lower than the median net worth of, of, you know, most European countries or Japan, you know, basically most other developed countries. And so there's a lot more economic vulnerability here uh, for people that if they lose their paycheck, uh, especially also because, you know, uh, they can potentially lose their health care. Uh, and so it's just been, a, it's you know, around the world, especially the United States and, you know, but many countries around the world, it's just been an extremely kind of difficult time for people to go through. Uh, and so yeah, if you go back to the fourth earnings, uh, you know, it's just always a, a very kind of uh, challenging event where existing institutions get challenged, right? So more and more people stop listening to kind of the establishment authorities and start kind of wanting to do their own thing. Uh, and so, you know, some people, for example, I think you had you had Brandon on your podcast who linked the fourth turning to Bitcoin. Uh, and so the, Bitcoin is kind of a classic fourth turning response. Right. So it's, it's saying, you know, the people are just going to do their own thing if they don't like how how governments or central banks are handling things. Uh, and so we, we've seen this kind of big interplay uh, between, you know, some of these more decentralized forces versus some of the centralized forces. 
Yeah, we're in this position now, which is there's like this crossover I'm doing where I'm kind of working my way through the fourth turning and the sovereign individual, whereby we do have this escape valve where you know people do have Bitcoin, but also have the the ability to move and this kind of like regulatory arbitrage where it's a, it's a thing that Balaji talks about. This really interesting is that there's you can vote with your you know you can vote with your ballot, with your feet, and with your money. And right now, the the vote with your feet is the most powerful vote that you potentially have. And the mass exodus of people out of San Francisco into places like Austin and Miami is super interesting. And I'm kind of intrigued on what the impact that is going to have. I don't know if you're tracking any of that. Yeah, because that's that's a key risk to watch out for. Because as those states, uh, you know, that that have people move out of them, they lose tax revenue. And unlike the federal government, they can't just print money uh, to fund themselves. And so they basically have to end up, you know, say cutting cutting police, cutting you know uh, you know whatever their uh, state workers might be. They have to cut costs, and then that can you know create potentially you know less safe conditions, can, can potentially you know less infrastructure spending, things like that. And so you kind of get that vicious cycle where then more and more people want to leave. And we saw you know if you look back and you know. New York's kind of high crime days in the 70s and 80s, we saw some of that mm-hmm. happen there where, where just like a, a local government can spiral pretty quickly. And so, you know, we talked before about how European countries can't kind of unilaterally print a lot of money. They can't because they don't they don't control their own currency. And it's a similar phenomenon with U.S. states. Uh, and so they're these big economies. They have a lot of, you know, they have pension debts to their to their public workers. They have all sorts of uh, things. And so one of their only release valves is they have to cut workers, they have to raise property taxes, and that creates a, a, a less, less uh, desirable place to live. And so you can potentially see some crisis situations play out. I mean, there have, there have been some, some U.S. cities that have been absolutely devastated uh, due to offshoring. So if you look at, for example, Detroit, Mm-hmm. Or do you know a lot of the the the, the you know the, the small uh, cities around the Midwest? A lot of them have just been devastated over time by jobs leaving, and then it just kind of becomes a vicious cycle. And so uh, there are a lot more uh, cities that are vulnerable to that. All right. Well, listen, we can't finish without touching a little bit on Bitcoin. A couple of things we we need to cover. Obviously, very very interesting time. We touched it a little bit at the moment, but it it appears that Bitcoin is becoming obviously a a more interesting option for for a range of people from the billionaires to the hedge funds to even the insurance companies in terms of like consideration for next year do you think this is just going to continue to grow do you do you think do you think there's any particular hurdles for other investors yet to now come into bitcoin or do you think the likes of you know paul tudor jones the likes of uh, mass mutual and square microstrategy do you think they've essentially created the the kind of protective moat around Bitcoin for people to invest. Yeah, I don't think there's that many more kind of hurdles anymore. I think, you know, once you have enough kind of legendary investors come out, once you have a corporation added to the balance sheet, once you have an insurance company added, uh, most of the, the floodgates are, are opened, right? And so uh, at that point, I think the, the biggest thing is, uh, you know, there will be some investors that say, well, like, I you know, I wish I bought it at 10000 but I don't want to buy it at $20,000. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, it goes up to a little higher and they're like, well, I'll just buy it. And so there's that, there's that kind of, um, you know, some people will be hesitant to buy it, but then it can cause FOMO in the other direction. So when they finally give up and just buy it, then you get a price spike. Uh, and so, and one thing that's different now is that, you know, because there's more institutional buy-in, uh, some of these, you know, holding periods could be a lot longer. Uh, and so when you have a lot of Bitcoin be accumulated by the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust or, or accumulated on, on, you know, kind of a more institutional balance sheets, you know, there's a good chance that's not going to be sold uh, within, within a year. For example, yeah, and long, so, long time holders. 
Yeah, and and actually, you know, if you look at the 2017 bull run, uh, and this is actually one thing I've, I've, you know, I've been a little bit surprised by, is if you look at that run, it would become overbought sometimes on the, on the, you know, if you look at relative strength index and other metrics like that, it would become overbought, and then it would, it would kind of correct 20%, kind of relieve some of that pressure, and then keep going up from there. Uh, and so, but this this recent uh, few months. Uh, it's just been it's just been kind of a building to a higher and higher weekly relative strength index, uh, you know, higher than than levels we reached in 2017. And I'm basically watching to see, you know, are we going to finally have that kind of brutal correction and then keep going up from there? Or is because it's more institutional, is it kind of just going to go up, you know, a lot further than people think? And so one of the one of the kind of the risks of, you know, a lot of people always want to wait for a correction to buy in. Right. But then, you know, it can always surprise to the upside, too. Right. Yeah. So that's why. That's why, for example, I've been, you know, kind of managing expectations of my readers, uh, but also saying I'm not trading around it. Like I'm not, I'm not, you know, even if I expect Bitcoin to correct 10% or something like that, I'm not, doesn't mean I'm selling it to try to game that. I'm just kind of saying I already have my position. Uh, I think, it, I think dollar cost averaging makes sense. Uh, and so, and people just have to kind of be aware that, that, you know, when it gets overbought, don't be shocked if you were to get a correction, but it's not guaranteed. Well, as, as ever, Lynn, it's always fascinating talking to you. You're like a, encyclopedia of macro knowledge um i always feel a little bit smarter than then also a bit dumber after talking to you but uh, no super helpful i love talking to you um yeah it looks like it's gonna be a great year for bitcoin next year very excited um appreciate you coming on looking forward to making lots of shows with you next year and i wish you a merry christmas yep thanks for having me merry christmas to you too and uh you know uh we'll, we'll see how the rest of this year plays out i'm, I'm hoping that by you know 2021 uh things start to return a little bit more to normal All right. I know you love that one. I don't even need to ask. How good is Lynn? She's amazing, right? I'm really looking forward to these shows next year. I think it's going to be a great way and keeping on top of everything that's going on throughout the year, definitely from the macros perspective, because it affects us all. Now, the schedule is a bit all over the place right now. Firstly, there's been some important shows I needed to get out, like the one with Coin Center the other day. If you haven't checked that out, please do go and check that out. Some important work that they're doing over there. I also want to get my end-of-year review with Matt O'Dell out, uh, but that's probably going to have to come out on Thursday now, literally the last day of the year. Uh, anyway, next week, everything will be back to normal, back to my normal Tuesday-Friday release schedule. Um, just want to say big thanks to everyone who supported the show all year really not just you know not just on an ongoing basis whether you're a guest a listener someone who tells their friends to check the show out a sponsor you're all amazing i couldn't do this without you so i hope you've all had a great year yourself i know it's been a bit weird a bit fucked up for us all but i hope you've somehow had a good year if you want to help the show i always just ask for reviews on itunes they really help with the listings it takes about two minutes if you want to do that i will massively appreciate it outside of that have a great week and i'll see you all on thursday 